Thank you, and um, and I want to uh, I want to thank uh, Gary for inviting me here, and uh, Nandy for taking such good care of me while I was here, and uh, and for the writers I worked with who were a delight. Um, I'm going to read two pieces. The first uh, is a, a shorter version of an essay that is in Portrait Inside My Head uh, called The Poetry Years. Uh, last night, uh, a, a bunch of writers got together and, and, and read poems. And um, I wasn't planning to read from this, but uh, they, they were talking about some of these people. So I thought, OK, I was. I changed my mind, I thought I'd read some of this. Um, and then the second piece uh, uh, is a, a, a more recent essay uh, about experience. So, poetry years. For about 15 years, I wrote poetry. I published poems in countless little magazines, gave readings all over, earned a living of sorts as a poet in the schools, teaching the art to children, and put out two collections, the first in 1972, the second in 1976, when I look back at those years during which being a poet formed such an important part of my identity, I am tempted to rub my eyes as though recalling a time when I ran off and joined the circus. Now, I didn't join the circus, but I kind of joined a, uh, the group uh, around the New York School of Poetry, uh, the St. Mark's Church group. And at that time, there was a kind of a division between the poets were considered the established poets, establishment poets in the New York School. Um, the, uh, there was a battle line to draw between the more establishment, prize-winning poets of the day, such as Robert Lowell, Richard Wilbur, John Berman, Elizabeth Bishop, Richard Eberhardt, Anthony Hecht, and Anne Sexton, and the New York School, who drew their inspirations from the French modernist poets and the paintings of the abstract expressionists. Uh, the so-called, there still seemed this antagonism as between two teams, the so-called established writers using poetry as a tragic criticism of life, and the other, the New York School, as a giddy celebration of art. I remember visiting Ted Berrigan in his East Village pad and being told by him that he never mixed life with art. Art came from life, I'm sorry, art came from art, he said, not life. Anyone reading Ted's heartbreaking autobiographical sonnets, or Franco Harris' personal poems for that matter, would be hard pressed to concur with his assertion, but that was at least the party line. When I first read the poetry of Berman, Lowell, Bishop, Sexton, and Sylvia Plath, I felt guilty like a Catholic reading books on the index, and even guiltier for liking them so much. Lowell's life studies was a revelation to me with its acerbic honesty, tamed by Milltown, we lie on mother's bed. Berriman's dream songs, a grim delight. Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. Surely it was possible to like both anguished confessional and breezy diaristic poetry, but I kept my taste for the former under wraps around the New York school crowd. I remember attending a reading by John Ashbery at NYU around 1967 when he premiered some of the brilliant poems from Rivers and Mountains. Perhaps to distance himself from the prophetic baton style of Robert Duncan or the shamanistic intoning of Allen Ginsberg, Ashbery read his poems with an ironic disdain, as if he had just bent down and picked up a piece of trash that had some improb improbable gibberish written on it. Listening, I had no idea what most of it meant, but I like listening to its tantalizing flashes of music and meaning. Afterwards, I hung around long enough to get invited to the cocktail party. At parties after New York School poetry readings, you would receive your literary marching orders. Reading tips were offered within an acceptably avant-garde framework that included such writers as Gertrude Stein, William S. Burroughs, Ronald Furbank. When I spoke to Ashbury after the reading, he mentioned to me De Kirikos, Hebdemorous, and Raymond Roussel's Impressions of Africa, both hieratic, hieratic texts in a surrealistic vein. I later came to suspect he was throwing acolytes off the scent, and that he himself had perhaps been more deeply influenced by Wordsworth, Bishop, and Auden. What I took most from my days as a New York School poetry, uh, poetry school fellow traveler 
was less aesthetic than social. I had the privilege to watch the way a lively poetry scene mushroomed at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery in the East Village under the nurturance of the Poetry Project's director, the glamorous Ann Waldman. She had even acted in television's The Mod Squad. This was the closest I would ever come to being part of a literary circle, a generation, a movement, a bohemia. And though I have always considered myself a loner, it gave me a clear glimpse of how such a network functioned. I accepted the poet's generous invitations to parties, to past joints, to publications in Mimeo magazines, to friendships and acquaintanceships. What they made of me, I have no idea. My first wife, Carol, and I lived way uptown at the northern end of Manhattan, above the cloisters. One time we threw a party and invited the St. Mark's crowd to it, though they seemed wary ever of venturing above 14th Street. They arrived late, having brought with them on the A train enough reading matter for an ocean crossing. Immediately, they headed for the bedroom to get stoned, ignoring my other friends. But the St. Mark's poets, if they were insular, they were also warmly loyal. I was fascinated by the way they supported each other. I once asked Ron Padgett how he and Ted Berrigan critiqued his, one another's poems. Ron said, I just say, that's totally terrific, Ted. <laughs> and when I show him mine, he says, that's totally terrific, Ron. <laughs> Whether this was strictly true, I have my doubts, but the lesson seemed to be that critical fussiness was passé. Another time I was visiting the poet and future art critic Peter Sheldahl in his apartment, and I commented with surprise that he kept WABC a top 40 rock station on all the time. What did he do when bad songs played on the air? Sheldahl said obstinately, there are no bad rock songs today. Was he pulling my leg, or did he really believe that? I felt like a visitor from the 19th century. I also watched with surprise, and maybe some envy, how the poets and their mates swapped partners. Ted Berrigan read a poem at St. Mark's Church that went something like, when you sleep with your best friend's wife, she gets fucked, he gets fucked, and you get fucked. <laughs> Loud titters were heard from the Kanashanti, who knew the poem's other reference, Peter Sheldon and his wife, both of whom were in the audience that night. As eye-opening as all this was, it did not necessarily make me want to be a poet. That came about another way. Living on the brink of poverty, I was looking for some freelance editorial work, often a euphemism for ghostwriting, which I did extensively during this period, when I came upon a notice requesting readers to help edit a new poetry anthology. Reading was one thing I felt sure I could do. I did very little else. So I answered the ad and was summoned to an interview at the home of one Hyman Sobolov. Mr. Sobolov, often referred to in those days as the businessman poet, was a wealthy venture capitalist who lived in a very tony townhouse on East 77th Street in the Upper East Side. He had several servants, and his townhouse had, his own, had its own elevator, which impressed the hell out of me. A Chinese servant answered the door, brought me into the parlor, and told me to wait as Mr. Sobloff was just getting up. This was noon. I had time to examine the antiques and indifferent paintings before the great man himself appeared in a silk-striped robe. His fleshy, curt, bald-headed, imperial manner put me instantly in mind of Louis Calhoun in the asphalt jungle, some sort of mobster kingpin or political boss. Sobolov explained the nature of the project, which was to revise the immensely popular poetry anthologies that had been edited by his, by his late friend, Oscar Williams. I was happy to tell him my own mother had read aloud from them to us when we were children such favorites as Alfred Noyes, The Highwayman. Poetically, you might say, Oscar Williams' anthologies were mother's milk to me. Sobolov gruffly cut me off, saying the point was that they needed to be updated. He had undertaken the chore as an act of devotion to a friend who'd passed away. He pointed to several precipitously tall stacks of poetry books on French Empire chairs and said, I know all this stuff cold, but I can't be bothered to go through them. I'm too busy. I need an assistant. 
Somehow I doubted he was as familiar with the contents of these volumes as he pretended, but I played along, familiar as I was, with my ghostwriting client's need to pretend omniscience. On my end, I bluffed like crazy about my knowledge of poetry. The interview lasted 15 minutes. He seemed satisfied, we agreed on a salary, and I took away a few shopping bags full of books. I had now to educate myself as quickly as possible in the English and American poetic canon. I was overwhelmed by the vast amounts of poetry I would have to absorb, but I began by plowing through the original Oscar Williams anthologies. I quickly saw that Oscar had put his friend High in the books as he had his own wife, Jean Derwood, and himself, though their verse hardly seemed on the same league as that of Keats and Whitman. Sobolev, I learned, was philanthropically active and a heavy supporter of poetry societies and magazines. I was too shy to ask Sobolev how he made his millions, but someone in the know told me that he had started in the furniture business and had perfected a scheme of buying a second failing business and transferring all the assets from the first failing business to the second, then shutting that down and transferring all the assets of the second to a third, in any case, some kind of fiscal ledger domain. Shortly after beginning the job, I learned I was not the only poetry reader. Sobolev had hired two others, like a gambler placing bets across the board. At first, he kept us strictly separate. But in time, I was able to contact them and consolidate my position as first reader by offering to coordinate the project for a higher fee. He appreciated my ruthlessness, I think. It was Sobolev who said once in passing that he was flying off to vacation in Barbados, leaving the city because, in his words, I'm tired of all these ghetto faces. A statement so appalling to me that I was almost charmed by its brazenness. I myself came from the ghetto and wondered when he would ferret out that fact. On another visit to the boss, I met a lady friend of his whom I took to be his mistress, a woman in her 50s with the body of an ex-showgirl and a face like, that looked like it had seen everything. When Sobolev left the room for a minute, she warned me not to take advantage of her high if I knew what was good for me. Believe me, I had no intention of cutting corners. My work schedule consisted of reading four poetry books a day, minimum. Most of them came from the library, some from used bookstores. Our boss had given us permission to augment his limited stock, and I saved the receipts for him. I would wake up and eat breakfast while starting on the first, get dressed, finish reading the book, take some notes about possible selections, and go off for a walk with a bag lunch around noontime, often ending on a bench in Riverside Park, where I would read a second book and then begin paging through a third. By now I was starting to feel headachy from eye strain and nauseous from a surfeit of poetic expressiveness. <laughs> so I would give it a rest, then turn to book four in the late afternoon, and maybe book five that evening if I had anything left in me. I recommend this brutal pedagogic method of saturation reading to anyone with literary ambition. Overstuffed like a goose for the manufacture of foie gras, I had no choice but to secrete my own poems. Out of sheer survival, I needed to have my say. Two other factors besides the anthology reader gig sparked my entry into poetry in the years I am describing, 1967 to 69. The political upheaval of the anti-war movement and the breakdown of my marriage. They were not unrelated. Living, as we did, fairly close to Columbia University now, I got swept up in the 1968 student revolt and re-entered my old alma mater as a troublemaking alumnus. Just as I had been a hanger-on at the New York School of Poetry scene, so now I became a fellow traveler of the new left, participating in demonstrations, political meetings, and study groups, reading Marxist texts alongside all that poetry. I never felt entirely comfortable with my posture of radicalism, nor could I embrace deep down the hope of making revolution, being an ex-scholarship kid from the ghetto, still trying to crawl into the middle class. But the heady 1960s talk of sexual liberation and down with the bourgeoisie and smashing monogamy had a destabilizing effect on my domestic arrangements. Not that I can blame the failure of that first marriage on the revolutionary left. I had married too young at 20 and hadn't a clue. We both made our mistakes. Meanwhile, my first novel had not found a publisher. 
It was intensely embarrassing to have a sympathetic witness to my failure living in the same apartment with me. I was unable to take defeat in stride and start on a second one. Writing novels requires a calm, settled, bourgeois existence, and the payoff is deferred for years. The fragmentation I felt so painfully in those days would not permit me to submerge myself again in a prolonged alternate dream narrative. I was too antsy, too much at the mercy of jittery day-to-day -day reality. I needed a form I could turn to with quicker results, snatching a few hours here and there from a patched together freelance existence and the emotional confusion of whether to leave or stay, hence poetry. My first poem seemed to emerge from Conjugal Dilemma. I still hoped we could salvage a marriage if we both behaved responsibly and maturely. Yeah, right. These poems now strike me as tentative and hypocritical, the way a couple in their last stage bullshit during marriage counseling while secretly eyeing the exit. Formally, I was feeling my way into poetry at the same time I was feeling my way out of the marriage. By the time my marriage had definitively collapsed, I was on much firmer ground Incidentally, I have always derived poetic inspiration from breakups. The rejection of love produces an emotional clarity in me, while the return to solitude arouses a need to solace myself with either lyrical resignation or revenge. I had decided to leave my wife and New York for California, the promised land of youth culture. Before I decamped, I turned in my list of recommendations for the updated anthologies. It's funny to recall what I thought then would make for such substantial improvements. I had wanted the collections to seem less stuffy, so I added Bessie Smith and Bob Dylan lyrics, a Native American chants, and a slew of black poets, and of course, increased the selections of the New York School poets, and F.T. Prince, John Wheelwright, Robert Creeley, George Oppen, Ed Dorn, and Allen Ginsberg, among others. Subloff looked them over without saying a word. Years later, when the revised anthologies appeared, I had a hard time finding any evidence of my labors. But the job had served its purpose. It had given me a condensed poetic education. The poets who influenced me the most at the beginning of my poetic career were William Carlos Williams, Frank O'Hara, Pablo Neruda, Vladimir Mayakovsky, and Randall Jarrell. I was happy to, to purloin Williams' three-line stanzas or Harris' splattering of words across the page, to imitate Mayakovsky's mock megalomaniac outbursts, Neruda's surreal in inventories, or the loquacity of late Jarrell. Later on, I would fall in love with the dramatic monologues at the back of Pasternak's novel, Dr. Zhivago, and Cavafy's deceptively simple lyrics and history poems, and Pavese's hard labor, with its dense materialist details of working class life. I was searching for something that made me happy whenever I found it, but I still didn't know how to characterize it. Though I had been a fan of Neruda's, when I attended the reading of his at the 92nd Street Y, he put me off with his hammy amphitheater delivery. It was another Chilean poet, Nicanor Parra, who crystallized for me what I was looking for with the title of his collection, Poems and Anti-Poems. This taste for anti-poetry, for grubby reality, was addressed by Wallace Stevens in his preface to the 1934 collected poems by William Carlos Williams, when he described Williams as someone for whom, quote, the anti-poetic is that truth, that reality, to which all of us are forever fleeing, end quote. I was drawn to the anti-poetic for a number of reasons. First, my training had been in fiction, and I was still charmed by the sound of conversational prose. Although literary critics might disparage a poem as being chopped up prose, that was insufficient to condemn it in my eyes. Quite the contrary, it, inter it interested me perversely to see how far one could go in that direction and still get away with it. A storyteller at, at heart, I also continued to like narrative. Some of Paris and Cavafy's poems were like little short stories, a room, a memory, a pickup. Second, I was much more impressed, I was much more intrigued by poetic statement than by metaphor, simile, and image. When I heard it said that great poets were characterized by their gift for metaphor, it bugged me. I did not go out of my way to find metaphors. 
If an app once swam into my brain while I was writing a poem, I put it in. If not, not. A profusion of metaphor and similes seemed to me, at this point in my poetic writing, forced. I even developed a theory that the late manner of certain poets, such as Pasternak and Montali, favored unadorned poetic statement because they no longer felt the need to show off with metaphors in order to prove their poetic bona fides. Third, I was rebelling against the lingering idea that poems should contain language or ideas that were suitably poetic. The beauties of nature, flowers, finches, rapture, elevated sentiment. I was drawn to more sardonic poetry that would traffic in mundane commercial objects, business terms, legalese. It pleased me beyond measure to be able to use a word like bicameral in a poem on Allende. A city rat, I had no command of the names of flora and fauna. I needed to stake my claim with vocabulary that would verge on the prosaic and anti-romantic. Finally, being poetically self-taught, and despite having read many books on prosody, <coughs> finding that very little of it stuck to me, never able to master my quantities, meters, and values, never having gone to graduate school to study poetry, I still composed poems largely intuitively on the basis of what rhythms or combinations sounded right to my ear. This awkward situation made me feel at a disadvantage among trained poets, but it also drove me to embrace the anti-poetic tradition that ran like a heretical streak through poetic history. Essentially, I was trying to turn a limitation, my ignorance, into a strength, my preference for the anti-poetic. To some degree, I was taking permission from the era's looser standards. The 1960s allowed for wide open, pluralistic, some would say amateurish poetics. The ascendance of the oral from the beat's first word, best word, through the black activist rappers such as Gil Scott Heron and the Last Poets, the cultural enthronement of rock troubadours, the proliferation of open readings in mimeo magazines, the promotion of children's poetry and ethnopoetics all contributed to the idea that anyone could write poetry or had the right to call himself a poet. One didn't need a graduate credential. It may have been an invitation to charlatanism and self-delusion, but it also made for no-holds-barred, anything-goes freedom, and I suppose I sneaked in under that umbrella. By 1972, I had been amassing sufficient poems for a first collection when a printer based in Northampton approached me and offered to put them out in a chapbook. The plan was for me to spend the month of August at his print shop, learning to operate a letterpress and assisting in the production of the book to be entitled, The Eyes Don't Always Want to Stay Open. When I arrived in Northampton, however, I discovered that the printer and his wife were about to divorce. And he was tempor temporarily closing the business while they sorted out the division of conjugal assets. I was welcome, he said, to stay in their house for the month of August, now that it had been vacated by both husband and wife, each of whom had moved in with a new lover. As I had no other plans for summer vacation, I decided to stick it out and explore the town and the surrounding Massachusetts countryside. I was at first miserably lonely and felt foolish and hollow. But as it happened, an elderly, poetry-loving woman neighbor befriended me. She knew how to operate the letterpress, so we set in type exactly one of my poems, the paranoid epistle, We Who Are Your Closest Friends, as a broadside. Annie Lamont, to my surprise, included this poem in her popular writing manual, Bird by Bird, thus bringing it to thousands of readers it would otherwise not have reached. Returning to the city, discouraged that there would be no chapbook after all, I visited my friend Bill Zavatsky and his wife Phyllis the first night back, hoping they might cheer me up. Zavatsky, who had edited the poetry magazine Sun, had been milling over, mulling over the idea of starting his own line of poetry books. Seeing me so disappointed, he told me not to worry. He would put out my collection himself. To my astonished gratitude, he began retyping the manuscript immediately and stayed up the whole night finishing the job while I slept more or less on his couch. Thus was born Sun Press, which would publish Ron Paget, Harvey Shapiro, Jamie Gordon, Paul Violi, Raymond Russell, Paul Oster, and Zavatsky himself. But whose maiden publication was The Eyes Don't Always Want to Stay Open. My second collection, The Daily Round, would follow in 1976. What remains to be told is how or why I gave up writing poetry. There is a simple answer, 
and a complicated one. First, a simple one. In 1980, I moved to Houston, Texas to teach at the University of Houston. I had been recruited as a creative writing program's first prose writer on the basis of my memoir about teaching, Being with Children, and my novel, Confessions of Summer, and my soon-to-be-released personal essay collection, Bachelorhood. If in New York City I had been accepted as a poet, such was not the case in Houston. I was not permitted to teach poetry courses. I need not have taken it personally. My colleagues, Rosellen Brown and Entezaki Shangi, both of whom had published two poetry books as well, but, but who were hired as prose writers, faced the same prohibition in the university writing program. A higher, purer standard of what it took to be a poet seemed to reign over that corner of academia, based partly on the possession of an MFA credential and partly on the networking of the professional poetry world. I got a real taste of the way the poetry guild mentality operated, the mentoring and bestowal of the blessing on a chosen few acolytes whose books would then be lobbied for publication. The non-exclusionary ethos of the 60s and early 70s had ended in the face of the writing program generated mystique of technique. The impression was conveyed that the poet was someone like a prophet of rare prophetic powers and there could only be at most a dozen poets in an era who'd receive the vision. I knew I had never gotten a message from on, from on high. I did not fit that bill. My sense of myself as a poet began to shrivel up. But that simple explanation is false. It would be wrong to blame my colleagues for killing the urge, since anyone who can be discouraged so easily from writing poetry is not cut out to be a poet. The truth is that I had already begun moving away from poetry before I came down to Houston, having fallen in love with a personal essay and its possibilities. I found in the personal essay a wonderful plasticity which combined the storytelling aspects of fiction with the lyrical associative qualities of poetry. If, as Robert, as Robert Bly recommended, American poets should learn to leap freely from line to line, thought to thought, and subject to subject, I realized I could do that easily in a personal essay as in a poem. Moreover, I could never have been deterred from writing poetry if my Houston colleague's judgment had not jibed with something already inside me, some insecure spot that made me feel that on some level I was an imposter. It had been a good long run, but it was time to stop pretending I was a poet. The second piece I'm going to read is in 17 parts, and it's called Experience Necessary. And it came about in this way that uh, the essayist David Lazar has been editing a book uh, in which he asked various essayists to, to pick a, a, an essay by Montaigne and to riff off of it. Uh, and so I picked uh, Montaigne's last essay of experience uh, to write an essay of my own on experience. One, of experience is Montaigne's last, and I insist, greatest essay. It inspires us with its wisdom and balance. Montaigne, like Goethe, had the knack, some would say the bad taste, of benefiting from his experience at every stage of life and achieving a calm, benign perspective with age, which I can't entirely seem to do. I am approaching my 70th birthday, three score and 10, the alleged fulfillment of a lifespan. I am still agitated, perplexed. I look back at all that has happened to me, and it seems as though it were practically nothing. To quote the last line of Borges' poem on Emerson, I have not lived, I want to be someone else. Two, on the other hand, I want to be only myself. I think I know what I'm about. I'm comfortable with that person can distinguish good writing from bad and decent human beings from jerks. Less and less do I feel the need to justify, to justify my conclusions. I carry myself in public with impervious self-confidence. In private is another story. My students, my students look to me for answers, and I improvise something that passes for adequate. Most of the dilemmas that shake these young people, the existential, religious, or romantic doubts their future professional prospects, their worries that someone won't like them, roll off my back. 
It could be that I am just numbed, unable to summon the urgency behind what to them constitutes a crisis. Mine is the questionable wisdom of passivity. What I cannot change, I no longer let myself be insanely bothered by. Even the latest political folly elicits from me only a disgruntled shrug. I am more upset when my favorite sports team loses. But then I remind myself that it wasn't technically my fault, since I lacked magical powers to alter the outcome. Three, are you experienced? Asked Jimi Hendrix tauntingly. Does he mean, have I slept with 50 groupies, humped a guitar on stage before adulating thousands, taken so many drugs that I risk dying from an overdose? In that sense, no, I am not experienced. Four, otherwise, are you experienced? Hell yes, I know the score. I wasn't born yesterday. I've been around the block a few times. I can tell which way is up. You can't pull a fast one on me. You can't pull the wool over my eyes. I'm from Missouri, show me. I know a thing or two. I know which side my bread is buttered on. I'm hip. I'm sadder but wiser. I'm no fool. I have eyes in the back of my head. I can tell my left from my right. I know my ass from my elbow. I can see which way the wind blows. I have a pretty good idea. I've been through the mill. I've been around the world in a plane. I've seen it all. Now I've seen it all. Five. The art historian Svetlana Alpes says, detachment is one of the forms that engagement with experience can take. Things seen at every move, appearing strange, and so more clearly seen." End quote. Experience can mean plunging into dangerous war zones, witnessing tragedies under fire, like George Orwell at the Spanish front, and Susan Sontag in Bosnia, or it can mean staying on the sidelines, exercising watchful prudence. Then there is the experience of ordinary humdrum life, what Virginia Woolf calls cotton wool, those moments of non-being. Bring it on. As Bartleby might say, I prefer not to live at the highest pitch. I have always been a fan of bemused detachment. I am rather attached to the notion of detachment. I accept in advance the guilt for being detached, should any such guilt attach. Six, of experience was, as I said, Montaigne's last essay. I wonder if this will be my last essay. I am running out of things to say. Moreover, I feel I have done my life's work as a writer. I have nothing more to prove. It is strange to have to come to such a pass and be surrounded by friends and colleagues still pressing on, unsure whether they will have time enough to fulfill their appointed destinies. I have fulfilled a modest destiny modestly. I have done what I set out to do and now linger on past my assignment. I can still visit museums and relish new movies or old books, can still enjoy a walk through unfamiliar parts of the city, can still participate in the delights, follies, and chagrins of family life, can still teach the young and hold forth in AWP panel discussions, but I don't want to work so hard at writing anymore. It's as if I have a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. All those years trying to meet the challenge of writing well have left me trembling with a desire for peace and inactivity. Seven. There is an abundance of things I can't do now and so probably will never do. I can't change a tire to save my life. Though if it were a matter of life and death, perhaps I could. I can't read sheet music or play the piano. I used to be able to read Hebrew, but now I can't without committing lots of errors. I am a poor swimmer and can barely stay alive in the water. I don't run marathons, not because I couldn't physically speaking, but because I can't make myself run a marathon. What I can't do and what I don't care to do are connected at the hip. I don't know Latin. I can't tell one tree or flowering shrub from another. I am at a loss as to how to identify the stars. In fact, my grasp of, of astronomy is so scant that I could say, as Charles Lamb did, 
I guess at Venus only by her brightness, and if the sun on some portentous morn were to make its first appearance in the West, I verily believe that, while all the world were gasping in apprehension about me, I alone should stand unterrified from sheer incuriosity and want of observation." End quote. My understanding of the way things work, including the laws of physics, is so pathetic, it's a wonder I can navigate the world at all. I specialize in ignorance. What do I know, as Montaigne would say? It looks as though I won't have sex with a man in this lifetime. Experience has taught me to honor my indifference and my cowardice both. Put it this way, experience has finally proved to be a school that trains me to limit my concerns and tolerate my limitations. Eight. One privilege of growing older is that you, you do not have to adjust to the new or, or even wax excited about it. I remain a man of the 20th century. Reluctantly dragged into the new millennium, I stay loyal to the previous one, hewing to the patterns I established then. For instance, I still read the print versions of newspapers and magazines and dress respectably when I take an airplane. I avoid thinking about Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, or texting, or any such innovations. Not that I deplore them. I have no high-minded objections to the new technology. I simply refuse to engage mentally with it. When I happen to glance at op-ed essays about the evolutionary danger these new forms of communication pose to humanist values, I stop reading the article forthwith because I don't want to care enough about the phenomena even to be alarmed by them. I refuse to be topical. I am thus spared much wasted effort trying to write ingenious think pieces about the latest splash or gizmo. Experience has taught me to recognize that much of what passes for innovation is simply puffery, the product of public relations and short memories. In pop or high culture, the edgy turns out usually to be the recycling of a tired trope. Take androgyny. Melina Dietrich wore her tux and kissed a woman on the lips. Now Madonna or Lady Gaga does the same. Similarly, S&M and black leather, fragmentation, jettisoning, jettisoning of narrative, scrambling of chronology, self-reflexive loops, Artodian stage ritual, Klebnikovian nonsense syllables, neo-Dadaist anti-art, Brechtian Marxist alienation effects, and politically correct consciousness raising of all stripes. In my youth, I would read the pages of the New York Times Art and Leisure section with avid credulity, thinking I must make it a point to catch up with this filmmaker, painter, opera conductor, or theater production. Now I scan the bylines, and knowing most of these arts journalists, whose opinions I don't particularly trust, nor do I value their prose styles, hard-working though they may be. I spend more time musing about how they got the assignment than reading through their articles. <laughs> Does that sound merely snotty or qualify as a sign of experience? Six, I'm sorry, nine. I have experienced enough in the way of people's strange behaviors not to be surprised by sudden breakouts of kindness, brutality, tenderness, betrayal, inconsistency, vanity, rigidity, schadenfreude, and its opposite. What does surprise me is current events. When 9-11 happened, I was taken aback by such a freakish thing. It was to me no accident that 9-11 occurred on the other side of the millennium in 2001. No good, I thought, can come of the 21st century. Not that the 20th did not have a share of nasty surprises. I continue to marvel at Republicans' seeming willingness to shut down the federal government and allow the United States to default rather than negotiate with the president. I don't understand my country anymore. How, after a century of federal, federal programs such as the New Deal, secure, Social Security, bank regulation, public housing, and food stamps, a large swath of the population can still take umbrage at the government's minimal efforts to protect the weak and the poor or indeed to have a presence in any aspect of life beyond the maintenance of a military force. Nothing prior has prepared me for this frightening swerve. 
I grew up in a post-war atmosphere of a modestly progressive welfare state where problems such as racial segregation and poverty were expected to be addressed at the governmental level, and I assumed naively that we were marching at best or creeping at worst toward a more just society. What I took for an inevitable historical progression turned out to be an anomalous blip. I might better have looked at Nietzsche's theory of eternal recurrence. Today, I am less experienced, less able to adapt to this harshly selfish environment than the average 20-year-old who has grown up without my New Deal Great Society set of expectations. 10. Newspapers were once enormously important. Now they're not. I am a creature of newspaper culture. Therefore, I am no longer important. I'm redundant. I must learn to accept my redundancy like Turgenev's superfluous man. Fortunately, I have had plenty of practice. I always anticipated I, I would be redundant, a cultural throwback, which is why I prepared by steeping myself in the antiquarian tomes of ages past, whose authors' names I suspected would mean next to nothing to future generations. When my writer friends in college were reading Beckett, Burroughs, and Pynchon, I was poring over Fielding, Michelle D'Assis, and Lady Morisaki. Later, when I discovered the joys of the personal essay, I clung to the fustian charms of Lamb, Hazlitt, Stevenson, and Beerbaum with scarcely a side glance at Sedaris, Wallace, and Vowell. I have cheerfully morphed into the type whose idea of a fun movie, as my teenage daughter scoffingly reminds me, is a restored black and white silent film. So what good is experience if the experience I have managed to acquire no longer applies to the new era's challenges except as the contrarian stiffening of my stubbornness in the face of novelty and the embrace of the antedated and rarefied. 11. Ralph Waldo Emerson rebukes me. Quote, this is Emerson. But the man and woman of 70 assume to know all. They have outlived their hope. They renounce aspiration, accept the actual for the necessary, and talk down to the young. Let them then become organs of the Holy Ghost. Let them be lovers. Let them behold truth. And their eyes are uplifted, their wrinkles smooth, they are perfumed again with hope and power. This old age ought not to creep on a human mind. In nature, every moment is new. The past is always swallowed and forgotten. The coming only is sacred. Nothing is secure but life, transition, the energizing spirit. People wish to be settled only as far as they are unsettled, is there any hope for them?" Unquote. Yeah, yeah, so you say. I do wish to be settled. Perhaps I have outlived my hope. When Emerson wrote this passage, it must have sounded fresh, rebellious, positively electric. Now it sounds dated. I realize that even in choosing to let Ralph Waldo Emerson rebuke me, I'm indulging in an antiquarian longing. 12. These are the last six lines of that beautiful Borges poem about Emerson. He thinks, I have read the essential books and written others which oblivion will not efface. I have been allowed that which has given mortal man to know. The whole continent knows my name. I have not lived. I want to be someone else. Well, the whole continent does not know my name. But I am respected. I have read a good many essential books, alas, forgetting most of what was in them so that I find I have to read them again from scratch. And I have written more than a dozen books which, if not guaranteed to escape oblivion, have given some pleasure to some readers. More than that, I will not, I must not ask. The gods get angry at ingratitude. I am not grandiose enough, like Emerson or Borges, to think it even my place to want to be someone else. This reminds me of the old Jewish joke. The rabbi and the synagogue bigwigs are beating their breasts on young Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and crying out, I'm a worm, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. The janitor, a goy, decides it looks like a good idea and starts beating his chest too and moaning, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. They stare at him with alarmed disdain until one of them says, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> Thirteen. 
Is it faux naive and presumptuous to consider myself a nobody, a mere minute speck under the stars? Or is it the larger geographical perspective of looming environmental catastrophe the only proper and responsible one? 13. What is the nature of experience? What is the connection, if any, between experience and knowledge? What is the relationship between knowledge and wisdom? Can one acquire wisdom passively? Can one live and not acquire experience? Is experience only experience if it has been converted into self-conscious thought? Or do we count the unconscious in our stock of experience? Our dreams, for instance, are they not part of our experience? By the way, is there really such a thing as the unconscious? Is wisdom principally an intellectual or an emotional property? Can wisdom bypass the heart and lodge only in the brain? Or does it ever work vice versa? What is the difference in value between a shady experience consciously undertaken and one prudently avoided? Does prudence, meaning the wise avoidance of certain sketchy paths, result in a shallower or a deeper soul? Is there even such a thing as a soul? If not, what is the point of gaining experience? 14. We are great fools. This is Montaigne, he wrote. We are great fools. He has spent his life in idleness, we say. I have done nothing today. What, have you not lived? That is not only the fundamental, but the most illustrious of your occupations. You say, if I had been placed in a position to manage great affairs, I would have shown what I could do. Well, have you been able to think out and manage your own life? You have done the greatest task of all. To compose our character is our duty, not to compose books, and to win not battles and provinces, but order and tranquility in our conduct. Our great and glorious masterpiece is to live appropriately. So said Montaigne, who wrote of experience at 56 and died when he was 59. We'll say 60 for the sake of rounded numbers. Since 70 is a new 60, I should be reaching that point of ripe wisdom that Montaigne attained at the end of his life, no? But since the average young person today has so protracted an adolescence compared to youth in 16th century France, see Philippe Arrier's Centuries of Childhood, which demonstrated that children were treated as little adults and expected to work from age seven on, we would have to subtract an additional 20 years from my maturities index, bringing me down to age 40. Then take another 10 years off for the syndrome that Hemingway contemptuously called the American boy man, meaning that there was something uniquely arrested development about the males in this particular land, which would reduce my emotional age even further, so I should probably be considered the equivalent of a 30-year-old. No wonder I am still blinking my eyes like a hatched chick and pondering what's what. Fifteen. The problem of solipsism. Not believing that others are as real as you are would seem to put a lid on acquiring wisdom. On the other hand, maybe we are all narcissists, and if narcissism proves to be the universal law, then we need to re-examine all the high-minded inveighing against narcissism and ask if it is a hypocritical form of social coercion. Why should we feel guilty about something we cannot avoid? I don't think I'm really a narcissist of the first order. Unlike Montaigne, I'm not even terribly interested in myself. When I'm alone in my study or walking the streets, I'm usually thinking not about me but about other people, trying to figure them out. Though that could just be another form of narcissistic self-protection, trying to anticipate what they might do so as to parry it effectively when the situation arises. In any case, I am something of a literalist when it comes to reality. I assume that the people around me are real, the tree outside my window is real, etc. I have never understood that notion put forward by Baudrillard or David Shields that we less and less feel our lives to be real, that the simulacra incessantly produced by the media have robbed us of a sense of our own authenticity and therefore we hunger for the real. I don't hunger for the real. I don't have the foggiest notion what that means. I just want to get by. I just want to enjoy what years are left to me on Earth, and most of all, I want to watch my daughter Lily turn into the amazing adult she is fast becoming. I want to watch her embrace her full potential. 
and her destiny. I worry about her fretting too much. Amor Fati, I want to tell her, love your fate, which I also tell myself constantly for all the good that it does. 16. I wake up between 6 and 6.30 each morning having to pee. My cats notice about me and begin to rummage about the bed at that hour to make sure I will get up and feed them. I put glaucoma controlling drops in my eyes the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night. I have no problem dropping off to sleep, but I wake up in the night more often than I used to, sometimes roused by noisy neighbors, sometimes by snoring, mine or my wife's, sometimes by a dream, or for no discernible reason whatsoever. I wake up and start picking my nose to clear the breathing passageways. This is particularly true in winter when the heat goes on at night and dries out the bedroom air. Because I don't get enough sleep, in the late afternoon I find my eyes drooping when I read, and many times when I'm at the movies or listening to an opera, I start nodding off. It's outrageous to pay so much for opera tickets and then doze, but I can't help myself. <laughs> Sometimes, just to keep awake, I rub my scalp above my forehead where there used to be hair and often find bumps that I try to smooth out by picking off the loose flesh. When I am in a public place such as the subway or at the movies, I am always worrying about bed bugs latching onto me. Ever since we had an infestation of them a few years back and had to take extreme measures to rid ourselves, hauling all our clothing off to the dry cleaners and wrapping the books. Every time my skin itches, I think it must be bed bugs returning. 17 and last. I hate to lie and will, do and will do almost anything to avoid telling a lie, even if it means sneaking out of a poetry reading the moment it's over, or if directly accosted, blurting out something undiplomatic and giving offense. This resistance to lying seems not so much from an ethical principle as a superstitious dread, as though if I ever started to lie glibly, my core self would dissolve and I would become a creature of multiple personalities. When you lie, you split yourself into two selves and then a third self has to keep watch and adjudicate the first two. Hence, adultery has never been much of an option for me. Of course, I have lied on some occasions, but I'm not going to tell you where or when. That experienced I am. Most of my lies are sins of omission, like keeping my mouth shut when I could get in trouble by saying what I actually thought. If someone tells me that he loved a movie I found abysmal, I smile and nod enthusiastically, though with a slight catch of the head, so that if God is watching, he will understand and forgive my deception. Why should we be transparent, though? Is art transparent? Better to honor the mysteries. There is so much we will never be able to understand that we do not need to go in search of mystery. It will come to us regardless. Thank you.